Hopefully you're able to pay attention to listen to that passage as it was read. <clears throat> a little bit of a chunk of passage here from Luke chapter 14. As you remember, Jesus Christ is on his way to Jerusalem. We're weeks out from the crucifixion and all the events that surround that. Jesus heading towards Jerusalem. We see him in all different types of scenarios through, through Luke. He's often in the synagogue. He'll be with the people of God for worship. Sometimes he is out with the outcasts and ministering among them. We see him on the streets. We've seen him at funerals. We've seen him at funerals, processions, and now we see him in a home as he's been before. <clears throat> Jesus has been invited to the home of a prominent and important leader, religious leader among uh, the Jewish people. And he has taken that invitation and he shows up. What we have here is kind of this one scene at this dinner party. And we'll see kind of four different events arise up one after another at this scene. And so before we look at those events, I want to paint us a picture a little bit of what this dinner party would be like. Hopefully you can put your mind, your uh, see things in perspective of, of Jesus at this dinner party taking place. Now, dinner parties in this time would have not been an uncommon thing. For an important person like this to throw a dinner party, if you got an invitation, it would have been a really big deal. So everyone who got one would have been very excited about it. You add to it now that Jesus is attending this dinner party, and whether you like him or not, he's a big deal. Everyone's talking about him. He's you know the most interesting person around at the time. So it heightens the hype for this dinner party. It would have been a very select invitation list, a select number of guests, Pharisees, important people who you want to rub elbows with. Dinner party typically would have been set up in probably a space a little smaller than this and maybe a bit narrower in a hall type of setting. And typically, as you read almost all the time, they kind of set up in this U-shape of tables. And so they'd have real low tables, just inches, maybe a foot off the ground in a U-shape. Of course, chairs aren't going to slide up underneath that, but they'd have couches sort of all around these tables, close enough you could reach the food, but then, as it says in the scripture, they reclined at table. That would be, they're kind of, you know, relaxing a little bit as they eat their food and converse. And so, these long rows, and then at the end, kind of the short end of the U, so you have your two long rows, the short end is just a few seats, and in the center would either be the host or the guest of honor, whoever it might be. So this probably that um, important Pharisee who was inviting people, Jesus himself, perhaps at the head of the table here. And to be a very important person means you're at that head table as well, left or right, kind of as you would think of like a wedding, you know, the dinner, the wedding party sitting up front, bride and groom in the middle, the most important people on their sides. If you're on table 32 way in the back, no one cares about you. They just wanted your gift. Um, and so th- that's kind of the setup here, <clears throat> is this is this experience, and it would have been, you know, quite an honor to show up for it, a casual type time now as you join and rub elbows in this intimate setting with some important people. So this is the framework that everything is going to take place in, is this sort of setting. <clears throat> so Jesus gets an invitation from the Pharisees, and like, I mean, we know this routine by now, Right? They're, it's a setup for Jesus. They're inviting him because they want to trick him. They want to trick him into doing something, breaking the law or coming up with a question that he cannot answer. And so he's invited, but the whole thing is a setup. It's like we have yarn at our house, and we'll, we'll make like a little slip knot in it, and Calvin, my son, likes to put it around like an animal's neck and act like he's walking the animal around. Sometimes you put your finger in it, and he'll pull it like he trapped your finger. 
but you know, he walks you through the steps. You have to walk over, you have to put your finger in, you do the whole thing, he pulls it, and then it's like, ha ha, I got you. It's, this is like the Pharisee. Like, you would think by now they would know this is not going to work. I mean, this is the third time that there's been a healing on the Sabbath, and they thought, ha, we've trapped Jesus. And every time they come out looking really ignorant, and it's going to happen again. But yet, the trap is set, the bait is set, and so here we go. So episode one that we see in chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, we'll call it Kingdom Power and Sabbath Mercy. Kingdom Power and Sabbath Mercy. One way we know that this is a setup, again, we've talked, this is an exclusive dinner party. There's no way that they're inviting someone in who is going to be a lowly, poor, probably beggar-type, crippled, injured person. And yet somehow he's been invited inside to this private dinner party. It says he has dropsy, would be what we think of as edema, where fluid would kind of cause you to swell around your joints and around certain muscles. You'd be a bit disfigured. You'd be in a lot of discomfort, hard for you to move as that fluid would build up and you'd be just swollen person no one's really wanting to deal with. And so they bring them here and the Pharisees, it says, Jesus shows up at the party and they're watching him. All right, it's a setup. They know what's going to happen. And Jesus, before he even addresses the man who are sick, before the Pharisees have a chance to say anything, the text says Jesus responds to them. (laughs) So obviously he sees through what's happening and he responds to them and he poses a question. And he poses a question that they can't answer. Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? You know, it's one of those you lose either way. You answer it. If they answer no, don't heal. Now they have the sick person they've invited into the, into the house, into the party, and they seem completely heartless if it is no, don't heal this person. However, if they say yes, you can heal, well, then they've dropped their whole, you know, they lose their whole shtick of this kind of high spirituality that adds to the law and gives them this elitism above everybody else. And so they sit there quietly. <clears throat> Jesus heals the man. He knows the man wasn't really invited to this party, so he sends him on his way. And then he turns and he asks another question to the group, and again, kind of just driving the things home a little bit harder. He, he knows them. In reality, if you had a child who was, who was sick, you would do something about it. Good grief. If you even had livestock who was in trouble on Sabbath, you would figure out a way to help that livestock on trouble. And so he asks them, wouldn't you act this way? And they have zero response. A zero answer for him. There's a couple reasons they don't have an answer. One is simply, if you look back at the Old Testament, Old Testament logs during Sabbath, there is no prohibition for healing on the Sabbath. The rabbis, the Pharisees had a tendency to add a lot of notes to their own law and come up with something even stricter and stricter. You remember Pastor Adam's sermon from a while back. It gave them this ability in this hypocritical way to present rules and things that they could use as leverage to dominate other people while they themselves didn't even try to keep those rules. And so that was the idea with this. First of all, they can't answer because there is nothing about the Sabbath that would, nothing in the law itself that would say no healing on the Sabbath. Secondly, when we look back, the Sabbath is a time of rest and celebration around the mercy of God. You think in Exodus 20, when the Sabbath command is given there, when the, the Ten Commandments, the law is given, and the Sabbath commandment, it's given to slaves who have been rescued, they've been redeemed, they've finally been released from Egypt after 400 years of this captivity, and now they're released into the wilderness. 
and the law is set before them in this time, this day set aside to rest from their labors, to rest in the deliverance that God has given them, to worship and remember what God has done in redeeming and rescuing them. Then a lot of the law that is built up after that comes then to protect the Sabbath as being a blessing for everybody. All these prohibitions are for the, the wealthy, those who have employees or servants at that time, that they wouldn't abuse those people and make them work on the Sabbath while they enjoyed rest, make them out there providing profitability for them on, on the Sabbath. And so these rules are given as a protection so that the Sabbath is a blessing for everybody. Really, when you look at Luke's Gospel and the Gospels, kind of tracing through, you bump up against the Sabbath time and time and time again. And there's four basic things that Jesus does on the Sabbath. One, he worships. You see him in the synagogue. He's teaching. He's worshiping. Secondly, he rests. You see that in Jesus' life on the Sabbath. Thirdly, is he performs acts of mercy. You see it time and time again. And fourthly, he gives permission to his disciples and those followers for deeds of necessity, as we'll call them. And the Sabbath becomes these things for us, a day of, as we say from the Heidelberg Catechism, a day of festive rest. Resting in what the Lord has done, celebrating His mercy, celebrating His goodness to us. The Sabbath is not a day of trying to see who is keeping the ceremonial laws just right. The Sabbath is not a day to come and to compare yourself one to another who's doing it better. Unfortunately, the church can become a breeding ground for that sort of judgmental spirit where instead of being a people who are oozing mercy and grace towards one another, we are a judgmental people. We went over this a little bit last week. We've talked about it before, but Jesus comes back to it again and again and again. And he does so because the one who despises mercy for others is not going to receive mercy from the Lord. We described a judgmental person. I want to go over this definition again because I think it's important. As someone who considers the faults of a neighbor with a look only sharpened by mistrust, not tempered by love or self-knowledge. A judgmental person is someone who reaches quick decisions about others, putting them in the worst possible light. You ever do that, something happens, and you immediately assign the worst possible motives to what that person just did, and there's nothing that's going to change your mind about it, and yet you expect everyone to you know, be incredibly gracious to you, but you're ready to assign the worst possible motive the moment it happens. A judgmental person, person often has little, little idea of proportion in the sense that the smallest offense deserves the quickest and harshest response. It doesn't allow for someone to have a bad day, to make a loose comment, to say something without immediately condemning. It doesn't see small, patient marks of growth and grace, but only sees where they should be and how far they are from that point. He's saying that the Sabbath, when it becomes this test of who's doing it best, it becomes this, this whole idea of I added all these extra rules and laws. Are you keeping them? Are you breaking them? You're missing the point of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is to be marked by these four things that we looked at. 
This should be instructive to us. It's how Jesus teaches, and then it's how he patterned his life, marked by worship, marked by rest, marked by acts of mercy, and allowance for, act, for deeds of necessity. And we see the kingdom power of our God once again displaying his power over the physical, the natural, the spiritual world as he heals this person. At this point, that's such a part of the story that we almost just skim over it. He heals the person, send him on the way. It's kingdom power invading the domain of darkness. And in this kingdom power, we see mercy that goes forth on Sabbath. Now, you've got to think, here sits all these Pharisees, all these people. They plan this whole party to trap Jesus. And, you know, in just the first few moments, now they've got nothing, nothing to say. They're looking stupid. And Jesus is not going to stop. He's going to keep going. R.C. Sproul says, whenever you come to a passage and someone makes a really stupid comment or does a really stupid action in that passage, it's not meant for you to judge that person. <clears throat> you are that person. <laughs> You're the idiot who said that. You're the idiot who acted that way. If we don't apply it and think, wow, that guy was an idiot in the text, then we'll sometimes think, wow, this guy three rows back from me, he's the idiot. And we apply it to someone else. Again, when someone does something stupid, that person's you. And so as we see the Pharisees and they're acting and these questions and how they're working, apply it to yourself. Again, you might not have the healing on the Sabbath question, you might have a spirit that comes to worship judgmental, ready to condemn, and not oozing mercy for one another. So the first lesson we learn here, we see God's kingdom power and Sabbath mercy. The second episode then begins in verse 7. <clears throat> and here we have a parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus continues, you heard it read, hopefully you can remember it, well... <clears throat> Basically what's happening is Jesus is giving just etiquette at a party. He looks out and he sees everyone's really maneuvering, trying to get the best seat. It's all this maneuvering for self-promotion, to, to make sure they're up close, they want to be right on the left, the right, they, they want to be getting the best seat. And he says just in a practical means of etiquette, it's a lot better to kind of come in, pick a seat in the back where you know isn't so desirable, and have the host come and say, no, 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 move up, have a nice seat. This is much more desirable than to fight your way to the front, get a good seat, and then someone important shows up, and they're like, I'm sorry, can you actually go to the back? These are reserved for the people we want to be here. <clears throat> and you have this weird sort of moment. I, I'll tell a story. I, I have a story. When I went to college, my parents moved right when I moved to college. I finished in, like, the winter semester, <clears throat> so I moved back home. I had about six months before I started seminary, so I moved back home. They had moved to Virginia Beach. I didn't know anybody. I moved back to Virginia Beach, and there was a church nearby where I had a friend, actually, who did live there, who was the singles pastor at that church, and they were always having these really large singles events with tons of singles coming. He's like, you should come, you should come. At the time, I was single, and I'm not like, I wasn't then, like, I wasn't a real, like, mover and shaker at the singles, you know, so it wasn't necessarily my scene, whatever, but I'm like, yeah, I'll go, so I go, and there's two big rooms full of couches and chairs, and there's people everywhere, they're in the couches and chairs, they're sitting down on the floor, they're moved all around, I'm kind of just making my way around the outskirts of it, 
eating some Tostitos, trying not to drip salsa on my shirt, you know, just making my way around. And I see the guy I know, the singles pastor, and there's like this little kitchenette kind of up towards the front. He's sitting there at a bar stool, so I thought, ooh, I'll go talk to him. So I make my way through the crowd, go up, sit next to him, this bar stool. We're talking about like the glory days of college, whatever it is. I'm starting to say something. It's getting a little bit quiet. He's like, no, 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 just wait a minute. He spins around on his bar stool, says, hey, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. He does a five-second prayer. All of a sudden, a Bible study is starting. Everyone's sitting out there like this. He's sitting at a bar stool, and I'm sitting at a bar stool. I'm not teaching. I'm, I'm just happen to be sitting up front by him. And so here we go. He starts, and everyone, you know, it's a singles event. You're there kind of checking everyone out, seeing what's going on. Everyone's staring at me. I don't have a Bible. I just have like a plate of Tostitos. I'm like not looking up. I'm not making any eye contact. It would be like if I brought Chris up. He sat on this chair and just looked at you the whole time I was preaching. (laughs) And you're just looking at him. So that's my story. I was looking for a humble seat and got promoted to a place, I don't know, maybe not exaltation, a place of awkwardness. But Jesus is teaching more than just etiquette in dinner table dinner party etiquette obviously he's teaching something much more important for the kingdom and we really see it when we come to verse 11 it's an axiom that the entire kingdom is built on it's this unchanging truth this unchanging principle that the entire idea of the kingdom of god is built upon and it is this in verse 11 for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted We've already seen it in the idea of the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You go through every gospel and it gives multiple references to the same idea of this axiom, of the prince, this axiom, this principle that rules the kingdom of God. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. You're seeking to exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled and laid low. God resists the proud. If you are humble and you're seeking the interests of others, God will exalt you in due time. I mean, that was so backward to the Pharisees who were all about themselves and being the center of their universe and promoting themselves and serving themselves and mo- moving forward in life and, and moving forward in their standing in life. It was all about self-promotion. And it's incredibly relevant today because nobody believes this. Inside the church or outside the church. Yeah, you might hear me say it and believe it, but... Barely anyone believes it enough to actually live this way. To not seek their self-exaltation and promotion of self, but seek to put others first. I mean, of course, culture doesn't. Politics doesn't operate that way. Sports, world, you know, someone looking to put others first instead of exalting, promoting themselves. Entertainment industry, I mean, you go through it. Business doesn't operate that way. And let's be honest, in, in, within the church, kind of the, the high church and all of its wealth and, and pomp and circumstance and this promotion of this sort of look of grandeur and you're bowing down to people and this promotion of self or the very low church who you kind of become an evangelical rock star, superstar, and you know you pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to New York Times to move your book up the bestseller so your name will be out there and you will be the man and everyone no one believes this principle 
But it's incredibly important because Jesus says, you're not going to enter the kingdom unless you humble yourself. You will not enter the kingdom unless you humble yourself. Look what Mary, when she finds out that Christ is that she's going to be the mother of Christ, and she meets with Elizabeth, and then she has that prayer, that Magnificat, in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in the middle of it, but listen to what she sings about her God, prays about this one who is going to be born to her. In verse 50 it says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to his fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Later in Luke 4, as Jesus comes to the synagogue and his much-awaited time as he opens the scroll is brought to him and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, applying it to himself. In Luke chapter 4, verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him... He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed. The whole axiom is, is those who are humble, those who put others before themselves, who aren't seeking self-exaltation, the Lord will be pleased with, and He will show grace to, and He will exalt in due times. The others, God will lay low. He will resist them. They will not enter the kingdom. Now, we're, the problem is, is that we've gotten good at this self-promotion. We're, just, we're much more subtle about it because we do it the trick is to do it without anyone knowing you're doing it. And so you can do it through this kind of type of legalism where you start creating, you take the law of God, you take what is laid out for Scripture, and you start either adding or editing or deleting some of those commands and creating this sort of own form of spirituality that now you live by and you condemn everybody else who doesn't. And so you add rules onto the gospel and now you keep those rules and you stand in judgment and you promote yourself through this sort of legalism. There's also a a pride and an arrogance that doesn't allow Jesus Christ the right to claim truth, absolute truth, the exclusive way to heaven. And so we take Jesus, we don't outright deny him, but we add him to a lot of other things. And what he has to say is good, but there's a pride that won't humble itself to the word. And then there's the most common of just this kind of subtle scrounging all the time to promote self and, and gain flattery. I mean, if you want to see it at work, just go to Facebook or Instagram or social media the humble brag has been perfected where you go in and you, you, you exaggerate and you create these stories that always make yourself the hero and makes everybody else as, as the you know, antagonist against you. And it's this whole world you create begging for flattery, begging for people to, to compliment you, to promote yourself at the sake of someone else. We, you know, it's kind of easy to see and laugh at, but it's serious. The one who exalts himself, who puts that much time into flattery, Jesus Christ is going to lay them low. That is the command that's given. 
Instead, He teaches us to be humble. And whenever Jesus teaches us to be humble, He doesn't just leave it as some sort of abstract idea in our mind. Humility can be a bit difficult because we can kind of think, you know, if you just kind of act, woe is me, I'm a little sad, and I'm so stupid, I'm so bad, that's humility. There is a a spirit of humility. I don't want to act like there's none of that involved, but humility isn't just a passive, self-centered thing. Humility is focused on others, and it is active. It is deliberately putting someone else's needs above your own. It is considering someone else, their needs, their success, their goals, as important or more important than your own. Their needs more important than the time you were hoping to just have to relax. The truck that they need packed is more important than the time you needed to unwind from the week. Their need more important than the extra money you're hoping to put in the bank account to save towards your vacation this year. Whatever it might be, humility isn't just this sort of passive, introspective, self-centered thing. It is tangible and practical. You ought to be able to look at your calendar, look at your agenda, and see humility. Look at your checkbook and see humility. Or is it all, everything is spent and focused on me? If there's a little extra time, then maybe, but... And the principle, the axiom is here is this is a litmus test of people who belong in the kingdom. Those who are humble. Where do we see this humility? Of course, we see it most in Jesus Christ, right? You see in Philippians 2, the one person who would deserve that exclusive seat at the Father's right hand, humbled himself as low as anyone has been humbled all the way to death on the cross, putting the interests, the needs of each and every one of us above his own. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. You see it in the example, the person of Jesus Christ. We come to episode three. It is the kingdom and true charity. The kingdom and true charity. Verses 12 through 14. Charity can be explained kind of, it's a combination of love and generosity and mercy. I mean, you put those things together. That's the idea of charity. Here he, now he turns to the host and just continues to get awkward at this dinner party and starts criticizing his guest list. What are you doing only inviting the best and the brightest and basically those who are going to promote you. You scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. This is an elite party where we all get ahead by hanging out together. Here's who you should have asked. And he lists a whole bunch of people who typically you're not going to invite to a party. And Jesus here, the, the rule isn't like don't spend time with friends and family. I mean, Jesus does that. The rule is for you as a person, us as a congregation, that there isn't an elitism about us where we evaluate ourselves and those closest to us, to us as that being worth more than somebody else. That just, 
we deserve to be treated better. We deserve God's grace. We are worth more than that person walking in who is just socially awkward, doesn't know how to, you know, they obviously have not been successful in the business world. They haven't been successful, you know, maybe anywhere. And, and there's this elitism about us that we're not going to spend time with them. We're not going to treat them one way. But there's a chance that you can advance my cause. Well, come here, best friend. Sit up front. That's what he sees at this dinner party. That's what he sees going on among the religious people. And he tells them that that is not the kingdom. The kingdom is the one who is moved and shows charity, shows love to the person who is not going to bring anything back in return. The only thing that they're going to bring is just frustration and, you know, ongoing work and effort. You're going to see little reward, get little recognition for it this side of eternity. But Jesus paints for us a beautiful hope that it isn't wasted effort. Look at verse 14. It says, And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, but you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The repayment in that final day is better than any bit of flattery you might get on Facebook. But yet we live for the here and now. We're so motivated. Like medical studies have been done that those, like when you get a text, when you get a like, when you get something like that, it releases an endorphin. You feel good and it's like you're addicted to it. And we can get more caught up in that and totally ignore the promise that investing in the unlovable, investing in the weak brings you eternal reward in the kingdom. We'd rather just have a momentary recognition now. Two things. One, there is a reward. And secondly, just that you will be invited into the kingdom. We're instructed in that way. But I think here, even as the real kicker, is that In reality, no matter if you are privileged, you're socially, you got it all together, you're successful in business and whatever, in reality, you are the poor and the blind and the crippled. You need the grace of God every bit as much, and you are as unworthy of it every bit as much as anybody else. You were blind and he gave you sight. You were desperate. When it says that he has come to set the captives free, don't act like, you know, well, I'm middle class and got it all together. And also to my friends, we, were, we all got it together. Christ came to set captives and cripples and lame free. You want to be in that group because that's the ones that God has come to set free that he invites into the kingdom. Again, not some sort of weird false humility, but the truth is humility starts with knowledge. Knowledge of who you really are and knowledge of who God is and just how wide that gap is and just how little, how no ability you have to cross that gap apart from the grace and the mercy of a loving Father who gave His Son for you. So the reality is we welcome all, even those who seem awkward and unlovable, because that's you. Until you begin realizing that and looking to Christ for hope, the kingdom stands apart from you. Episode 4 then, 
And that's the kingdom and the great banquet. We'll close with this episode. Verse 15, what seems to be happening here is it's just getting awkward. Jesus is making everyone super uncomfortable. He's telling them things they don't want to hear. So this Pharisee kind of chirps in with something just to kind of ease the tension to make everyone feel a little better. Verse 15, one of those reclined at the table with him heard these things. He said to him, well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Like, you know, let's just feel a little better about this. Of course, Jesus doesn't go along with it and let them off the hook. In its face value, that is a true statement. Blesses everyone who eats at this great banquet. Isaiah 26, that great banquet, or Isaiah 25 or 26, that great banquet that is set before the people of God and the kingdom. But the problem is he's making an assumption that because... He's at this banquet, and he was important enough to be invited at, at the little dinner party he's at, then surely he's going to be at the great banquet as well. So Jesus gives a final parable, and he, <clears throat> he goes through sort of the way you would invite someone. He says, let's say in his story there's a great banquet, a great party is being planned. If it's great, it means there's going to be lots of people, there's going to be great food and libation, all kinds of things that's going to make it a great party for everybody. And so what they do is when they first conceive of this plan, they send out uh, announcement to everyone, probably not an e-blast back in the day, but you know, servants go out individually and invite all these people. And there's kind of an RSVP that takes place. And everyone's like, wow, that sounds like an awesome party. I'm in. And so the party is planned. You might not know the exact date of it, but you kind of know that's coming. <clears throat> then, and that's what he's saying here. Everyone accepts this invitation. But then the day of the party comes, and the servants again, now they go to their house to the people who were invited and said they were coming, they serve kind of as a valet. They, they show up and say, the party's today, get ready, and I'll take you there. I always think that would be a great way to do church ministry, you know? They sign up for childcare, you sign up for something. We show up the morning of and be like, all right, we're ready to bring you, get ready. That would keep everyone faithful and on their toes, right? <clears throat> so they show up, and, and now... The party's come, but a lot of time has passed. The party doesn't seem as cool as it did six months ago. You know, you're just not as good of friends with the person throwing the party. Your other close friends aren't going. And so these people come up with super lame excuses. One guy, I have a field and I need to go look at it. You know, like that's urgent, right? He hasn't looked at this field already. The other one has bought oxen. He needs to go try them out, make sure they're good. The last guy says, I just got married. I can't come. It actually seems to be like a scriptural reference in Deuteronomy. It talks about when someone has been married, a man is relieved from some obligations for a while. But the obligations are like going to war and that sort of thing. So it's a real stretch to think, you know, he doesn't have to go to this dinner party because he got married. But whatever the reason, they're lame excuses because they've decided there's other things that are more attractive to them right now than going to this great banquet. The guy returns, the servants return and tell the host, like, people aren't coming. Host is upset. Says, well, fine, well, then go get, you know, the people just out on the street, those who are lame, those who are crippled, those who have nothing else to do, bring them into the party. They get them and there's still room. Then he says, well, go out to the highway, get the strangers, get the people passing by, bring them in. And again, we know in this parable, Jesus isn't just teaching, again, about polite etiquette for invitations with a party. 
But he's making reference to a kingdom. This, this guy's assuming he's got the invite, he's going to be at the party. Jesus is teaching us that we might want the party, but with it, you need to desire Jesus and the call to discipleship that goes with it. Just because you have an air of religiosity about you and you've, you kind of have the rest of things together in your life, I think churches are full of people that way who just assume, I got a good life going, God is a, you know, a cool part of it. Those are the ones who stand before Jesus on that judgment day and he says, they say, Lord, Lord, I mean, I'm ready to come in. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Adam preached on this a couple weeks ago. This is the scary part. They think they belong in the kingdom and they don't because they've totally ignored the kingdom axiom of placing others first. It's all been about self-promotion. And now when Jesus comes and offers a kingdom, it looks nothing like they thought it was of, man, we're going to come and we're going to be big time and we're going to conquer. But no, he's telling you to take up your cross. He's telling you to serve the unlovely. He's telling you to put other people's needs in front of your own. That's the kingdom. It's like, nah, you know, I got other things right now. I got a field I got to go look at. And you come up with these excuses And we learn something about the nature of the kingdom at the end of it. First of all, the kingdom, the the party, this banquet, the new heavens and the new earth, eternal life, it's not going to wait until you're ready. They were disinterested. They missed the party. It's happening at a pointed time, whether you're ready or you're not, whether you've received that invitation or you haven't. Secondly, we're going to be surprised by the makeup of it. You see here, it went out in, in this, you kind of can see historically to these, the Jewish people who have heard prophecy and prophecy and they're awaiting the Messiah. They're ready for the kingdom. The, the, especially the religious leaders, they're really ready for it. And yet when it comes and it's offered, they don't want it. It's not what they're wanting. So instead it's made up of all the humble and the poor who see it and desire it. Yes, I want to go and be satisfied at that party. I want to go. And then it's taken to the nations as they go out and strangers and passers-by will be involved in it. It's not going to be just the religious elite who have puffed themselves up. In this case, just the Jewish elite, the Pharisees. But it's going to be made up of those who recognize they're poor and they're needy and they turn away from themselves into a Savior. Look how Jesus closes this passage. <clears throat> it's been all storytelling and then he makes it quite clear that he's the one inviting people and it's his party. Verse 24, he says, For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste my banquet. None of those who heard that gospel invitation go out, that knew the good, new, good news, that heard about the banquet, but just denied right now, Jesus and the call to discipleship aren't worth it for me. There's other things I would rather do than take up my cross and follow Christ said, none of them are going to be there. You realize how awkward this is? It would be like me saying to you, none of you are going to be there. That's what Jesus is saying in this room full of people who have it all together. They're the elite of the elite. That's why they're at this party. They came to stump Jesus and make him look stupid. And now he's telling them, you're not going to enter the kingdom. It's going to be full of crippled and lame people. It's going to be full of Gentiles and heathens. Not this kind of religious elite that sits before me. At his great banquet, 
where every God-given longing, every Christ-exalting wish and desire, you'll be satisfied for all eternity at this banquet. And yet the momentary pleasure and satisfaction of you know, enjoying your property and giving yourself to your oxen and your industry and you know, my family always comes first no matter what, all of that's going to keep you out of the kingdom. And that's the call to discipleship. Can I just leave you? This passage talks about the beauty and the glory of the kingdom, but it gives a serious warning. This axiom of the least shall be first, and, or the least shall be exalted, the, those who try to promote themselves will be humbled, it's not just something to hear and dismiss. A lot of us need to reorient our life around this principle. Because it's a kingdom principle. It is a truth that stands, <laughs> that governs the kingdom of God. That is a reality for all of those who enter in. It's this, that humility, deliberate and active humility is part of your life. That you love mercy more than judgment for others and that when the invitation for Jesus comes, the beautiful invitation that right now there is a call of discipleship with it. There is a call to follow Jesus and there is an immediate call. And you can't just say, well, I want all the great food and libation at the party, but I don't want everything else involved to get there. He says you're not going to be part of that party. There is a great banquet that awaits the people of God. That's a truth. That's a reality. Let's live in a way that is humble, that loves mercy for one another, with the promise that Jesus Christ will exalt and raise us up at that resurrection of the just as we enjoy that banquet with Him. God, we love You. We thank You for Your Word, <clears throat> which teaches and instructs our hearts. Lord, might you plant it firmly and deeply in the hearts of your people this morning. You take just a moment with your eyes closed there, continue to meditate upon the word. Worship team is going to come forward in just a brief moment. Allow us to respond corporately in song.